degraded land supporting human conditions not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians cause they owned by special interest groups that fund their campaign that's why you hear the same old things they claim but change never came Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week on the Project Censored Show, we'll look at the condition of American journalism. What is the state of our free press? Is it dying or reinventing itself? What about the increasing problem of censorship, particularly online, not directly by government, but by corporations? We'll hear opinions from Menar Adlai, Davey D, Max Alvarez, and yours truly, Mickey Huff, Excerpts from a panel moderated at St. Mary's College by Nolan Higdon. An hour on the state of journalism and the state of our so-called free press coming up on today's Project Censored show. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week, we devote the hour to a look at the state of journalism in the United States. We'll hear excerpts of a recent panel discussion on that very topic. The panel took place at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Panel members included Minar Adlai of Mint Breast News, Max Alvarez of The Real News Network, longtime radio host Davey D, and myself, Mickey Huff. Media scholar Nolan Higdon was the moderator. We'll begin with remarks of Minar Adlai, the founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. She describes some of the determined efforts that governments and tech giants have taken to obstruct or undermine her work. Here is Minar Adlai. Living in the United States, we are the beacon of the free press around the world. The United States represents the so-called free press. And as we learn in journalism school under our First Amendment, the role of a free press is to hold the establishment accountable. And so our role as independent journalists is to act as a watchdog to those in power and to hold them to account. And one of the first experiences in seeing how the media works was after I had lived under Israeli occupation and apartheid as a preteen, and I had witnessed really grave human rights abuses and witnessed how Israel acted as a proxy to the U.S. military machine and the military industrial complex. And so when I had moved back to the United States as a teenager, I turned to the news and the media to keep up to date with what was happening overseas, only to find a media that was representing the interests of weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon. And so this was my first introduction to media and the way in which our media in the United States has been hijacked by the interests of the military class and the elite. And so since then, it has become part of my personal mission to build an independent media arm for the movement, for the peace movement, to represent the interests of the people on the ground and to hold the military class accountable. And so what we have seen, especially since then, I mean, I was about 13 years old and a couple of months since returning back from Palestine, 
9-11 happened. In living in a post 9-11 world, we have seen the consolidation of corporate media to a point where we really don't have a watchdog anymore. We have a lapdog media representing the interests of the 1% elite in this country. That's why it's so important to support independent journalism. And since actually 2001, we saw a renaissance of independent journalism and journalism outlets kind of sprout up from beneath the surface to take on corporate media, to take on the war narratives, whether it was from the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, or Syria, and the expansion of the U.S. military machine through its bases and occupation and exploitation of nations abroad or its sanctions regime. But what had happened since then is we've also faced some major, major censorship through the rise of the internet. While the internet is something to be celebrated where we can share information and share ideas, big tech has now become another arm of the elite. And so I believe that censorship is now the number one issue that we face in this country, because if people don't have access to any sort of alternative information or news, the establishment is simply going to use the algorithms and use our news feeds to propagate whatever sort of narrative that they want to feed the public. And so that's where we're at today. Um, since 2016, since the elections between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, since the establishment has basically waged a war on so-called fake news, what this has really meant is that they have waged a war on independent journalism and journalists. And so we at Mint Press have seen a major hit by Google's change of algorithms, Facebook's partnerships with the Anti-Defamation League, and Facebook's partnership with the Atlantic Council, big tech social media giants partnering up with Israel and the Democratic Party. The very entities that the media should be holding accountable are now working in cahoots with these organizations and entities with these special interest groups. And so it's more important now than ever for independent journalists to be supported because there is a huge suppression campaign to silence us so that um, you know the United States and its failing empire can continue to propagate the public and justify its wars abroad and its exploitation of people at home and abroad as well. I just wanted to add that it takes a lot of moral courage to be doing what we are doing in today's age of censorship. Having been an anti-war activist from a very, very small age, marching through the streets of Minneapolis with the late Paul Wellstone, protesting and speaking up against U.S. militarism has been basically my mission since I was a young child. And that was because of living under Israeli occupation. And being a woman who is Palestinian, who is also Muslim and who wears the hijab, some of the experiences that I have been through is that no matter what conflict that I personally have covered and protested or we have covered at Mint Press, it seems that myself and Mint Press have been targeted through a very Islamophobic lens. And I find that to be very interesting. And I do see that as a very convenient way to dehumanize myself and a Palestinian woman and Muslim woman in a way to 
delegitimize the anti-war sentiment that we are promoting at Mint Press. I find that to be very, very interesting and convenient. I think it is mostly because of being a woman and being Palestinian and being Muslim. It's a rare thing even within our movement. But what this has looked like is that whenever we do talk about Palestine, for example, we bring attention to Palestine, anti-Semitism is always weaponized against myself and uh, some of the journalists that we have worked with. We're always accused of being anti-Semitic, always accused of supporting Hamas, <laughs> even though you know we promote the idea that Palestinians, of course, have an absolute right to resist the occupation, just like any occupied people, and that's their right under international law, or whether it's promoting the idea that there's no such thing as humanitarian intervention. All U.S. intervention means death and destruction and profits for the military industrial complex and just filling the pockets of the weapons manufacturers at Lockheed Moore and Raytheon and so forth. But whenever we challenge a establishment war narrative, whether it was the U.S. intervention in Syria or U.S. intervention in Libya or U.S. intervention in Iraq or Afghanistan, the way the media tries to dismiss our coverage is not by debating us or trying to look at the facts and have a discussion, but it's always in a way that's a smear campaign to paint us anti-war journalists as supporting like the enemy state. You are pro-Iran or you're pro-Assad or you're pro-Qaddafi, whatever it is. And we've seen this in smear campaigns against myself by people who we have found out later to be working hand in hand with employees at the State Department or think tanks, even our Wikipedia page at Mint Press. And again, this is not just happening to us. This is happening to like a lot of independent anti-war journalists. But our Wikipedia page has been targeted by think tanks and by pro-settler Israeli groups. They have gone on our Wikipedia page and have made not just hundreds, but thousands upon thousands of edits to ensure that we are framed and painted into this caricature that would kind of dehumanize myself as the director of the media organization and frame the outlet as being pro something that it's actually not when really we're promoting just this anti-war um, narrative. And then when it comes to the algorithms, 70% of our readership was coming from Facebook before the 2016 election, before Facebook had announced its crackdown on so-called Russian disinformation, and Iranian disinformation, and, and fake news. And since Google announced its Project OWL, our readership declined dramatically from Facebook's change of algorithms and then also from Google's Project OWL. And now this new thing that has come up is NewsGuard, which is like this browser plugin that is already installed in all public libraries in the state of Hawaii. And it's being introduced to be installed on all Microsoft products and across the entire country in the United States in all public libraries. And what this plugin is, is like it's a warning system. It's a warning system based on like the 9-11 terrorism levels of like red being like really bad, orange, you know, kind of bad, green, it's a good, good website. So they're ranking websites based on these color rankings that were used after 9-11. And we looked at um, who was behind NewsGuard and it's actually the very people that developed that terrorism color ranking to scare people after 9-11, they're actually behind NewsGuard. So it's these Bush 
era neoconservatives who are the architects of the post 9-11 world that we live in and all the wars that we have, they're the ones behind this NewsGuard plugin. And why this is terrifying is not just like a warning, but it's actually going to derank websites even further than we already are deranked. And it's also going to prevent websites from also receiving any sort of advertising and funding ways to fund their website. Mint Press, by the way, has already been ranked. We have a big red. And a lot of independent websites have already been ranked as red, including Consortium News. And by the way, just in the last year, Mint Press and Consortium News have been banned from PayPal. And we have come to learn, based on leaked emails from British establishment journalist Paul Mason, that that was a direct hit by the UK national security state. They basically gave orders to PayPal to shut us down. And it was because of our viral article about the Kiev independent, because we exposed the Kiev independent, which is like this number one so-called independent source on the war in Ukraine. Well, we exposed it as receiving millions upon millions of dollars and set up even by NATO states, but it purports itself to be an independent website. And so Sure, we can report on all these things and we can talk about these things and we can do the things that we do as independent journalists, but this censorship campaign is real and it's happening behind the scenes where nobody can really see it, but we feel it every single day. And the problem with social media and the way the algorithms work is it's also creating echo chambers. People are going to go on social media, they're not going to find our kind of news, independent news, because of the way the algorithms work. And it's just creating echo chambers and people are just finding the information that they would like to see, or sometimes a little trickle in with some entertainment here and there, the things you didn't even subscribe to. But in the end, to talk about solutions, I mean, I personally have been practicing getting off of social media. You know, we promote our work on social media, but it's so important to get on the streets. We have to actually get on the streets and into our communities and talk to people. I have made more of a difference in people's lives by interacting with people in my own community than going online and posting. I'm not saying that we should not post online because it still serves a purpose, but we can actually make more of a difference and influence people through connection, like this personal connection through connecting with people in our communities. I mean, the media right now and the way social media works, not only does it create echo chambers, but it encourages polarization and it encourages people to not talk to each other. And sometimes it's healthy and beneficial to talk to people on the other side that we probably disagree with and that's okay, but how are we supposed to get more people within our movement if we don't talk to each other? I just wanted to leave it with that. And that was Manar Adlai, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Breast News. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, and I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're listening to excerpts from a recent panel discussion I took part in, held in March of 2023 in Moraga, California, at St. Mary's College. Up next, we'll hear panelist Davey D. 
a longtime radio talk show host in Northern California, no stranger to the Pacifica Radio audience. His show is Hard Knock Radio. David E. formerly worked for Clear Channel and Time Warner. Here, he offers an insider's perspective on the MO, the modus operandi of commercial broadcasting. Here's David E. I'll add it to the conversation this way. There are four points that I want to bring to fold. One, I remember in the late 80s, early 90s at the New Music Seminar in New York with Sister Soldier talking emphatically about how her work as an organizer was being undermined by music industry people who were serving the role as middleman. And I remember her talking because what she used to do is bring artists to Harlem and other places and get people to register to vote. And she went directly to them. And she was chastising many of the popular artists at that time for allowing folks like Kara Lewis and others to be a middle person. It's like, why should I have to go through a middle person to talk to you, Chuck D? Why do I need to talk to somebody else to talk to you, Eric B? And she ended it by saying, the middleman is going to be the death of us all. You know, we're in the community and we got to have direct communication. So I want to bookmark that for a second, and I'm going to come back to it. The second thing is working at Clear Channel when I was at KML and also working at Time Warner. In the mid-90s, we used to do these summer jams. I remember that summer jam was driven by the artists that we had on the bill. And then one day we had a meeting and we basically said, it's not about the artists, it's about summer jam. We are now going to make the artists interchangeable. It doesn't matter who we have. We could have Mickey Mouse or Beyonce. You just want to come to our event. And then we moved into a process of taking the station. And as my boss at the time said, make the station a habit that people can't quit. And everything that we were geared to was designed to embed the logo or the armado into people's heads so that whether they listen to the station or not, they knew it's the station for hip hop and R&B. So they was like, we're going to make the station a habit that you can't quit. I wound up working for Time Warner programming their radio, and we had a big industry-wide meeting. And I think it was Dick Parsons at the time who said, our job is to reinforce learned behavior. He said, we have a research team. They know what colors people like. They know what they do. They know whether you want to be up, down, or whatever. They did all this intel to find out how an audience would respond to particular types of stimuli. And our job was to reinforce learned behavior. So I bring all this up as I get to the fourth point, which is that over that 25-year period, and maybe even longer, maybe 30 at this point, we've seen the definition and our understanding as a mass of people about what is journalism. Journalism used to be Walter Cronkite, or Dan Rather, or somebody sitting on the news, basically, we didn't know they were reading from a prompter, but they would tell you what was going on, or it might be the New York Times with all the news that's fit to print. Then very slowly, you started to see, and I think Menard, you know, alluded to this, a business-to-business -business relationship that started to evolve. So basically, journalism started to be 
and I saw this firsthand, it started to be a mouthpiece for whoever we were selling ads to. And we would package sometimes those ads <laughs> as news stories. So the example that I like to use all the time is when Apple would come out with a new phone, you turn on the TV, whether you're in Washington, DC or San Francisco or, you know, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and everybody's doing a report. Hey, the new Apple iPhone is out and everybody's standing online. They have a reporter there and, you know, and it, it becomes big news. Now I know for us, we had paid advertisement. So we were said as an agreement, we're going to send a street team out to the nearest mall and we're going to cover that. So now two things are happening. One, a paid advertisement is now being packaged as news. I'm using that as one of many examples. I can give you a thousand more and sometimes they become more stealthy. But the other thing is journalists now were equated with people who just had opinions. So now all of a sudden, me as a street team guy who's out there with a microphone telling you everybody's buying the new iPhone, I'm a journalist who has the same rank and same credibility as, say, Mickey Huff, who might have spent 15 hours working on a story. All I need to do now is show up with a microphone and look the part, and the average person goes, he's a journalist and he's a journalist. So now this comes to a very, very important point as we got into the Internet. The internet for me, when I got on in the early 90s, was about relationships. What is your relationship? And even in radio, what was drilled into us, what is your relationship with your audience? So Davey D, the radio personality, needed to be seen and heard and had to establish trust with a large body of people, and that would carry the day. It's like, I can trust Dave's word. What he says will be true. We can hold him accountable. We see him. We can touch him, we can engage him, all these different types of things. So I've always held true to that, to keep close to my audience, to not be one of these people that you just saw on the television or just heard on the air. People needed to have receipts, like I seen that brother here. So there's some sort of relationship that is going on. Journalists, generally speaking, even many of us in the independent sphere have gotten away from establishing those solid relationships, intentional relationships with the masses. And that relationship that we should have had established, it's now been established by other entities. Internet influencers now have an audience. My daughter, 12 years old, knows about all these internet influencers before she knows about a journalist. And I'm a damn journalist living in the house with her. But she knows all the people, the lady with the green hair. She knows these things. And now those people become news sources for her. So now at 12, she is going to tune into an amplified internet influencer before she wants to hear an Amy Goodman on Democracy Now. So at 12 years old, that habit is cultivated. And so all of a sudden, that internet influencer is her journalist, is her journalism now. The feeds that she get is the news of the day. And she only knows what she knows. If there's an accident in East Palestine, she doesn't know because it never shows up on her feed, which goes to the point I think everybody else is making. Ain't nobody getting an East Palestine thing on the feed because some of it is business to business relationships. Hey, we have a deal with this train company. You know, they're buying ads off us. We're not going to show that. Or when I was in radio, I had bosses that were like, look, Nike just 
spend X amount of dollars on their new store in San Francisco. So you got to kind of jettison that story on sweatshops. And in fact, we need you to maybe do an interview with Phil Knight, which was actually a request that was made. And he has questions that he wants you to ask. So now as somebody who's a trusted source, if I take hold of that, I have now validated the BS that we're supposed to be fighting. You see what I'm saying? Well, if Dave said Phil Knighting's cool, then it must be cool because he's a trusted source who now works for an entity that is now systemically undermined what you're supposed to be doing. You're doing a dance with the devil. And if I can get independent folks to do a dance with the devil, then it's validated. When we go back to the rise of indie media, which Menard was talking about, I went to a lot of these conferences and I saw some very interesting things. A lot of people started to become insulated. They started to hobnob with each other and stop hobnobbing with the very communities that they're supposed to really represent. And it's real easy to maybe forget about that person who's downtrodden in East Oakland, unless we break out of that bubble and go see them and spend time. Our primary relationships become us in this room and, and by extension, other journalists, et cetera, et cetera. That insulation can sometimes, one, blind us to certain things. We now have blind spots that we don't realize that we have. And two, we unintentionally start to be a validating source for other folks who then come in with ill intentions. So when I would go to these conferences, I saw a lot of people get caught up and they were caught up in the industry. Like, wow, I'm getting some attention. I'm on a panel, but I might be able to go on MSNBC and I might be able to go on CNN and I might be able to go to some of these other outlets. Well, if you go on those outlets, there's literally a script or some things that you better not be talking about if you go on some of these things that not be talking about Palestine. That's an unwritten rule. If you show up at these places, as I found out on CNN, you can't sit up there and be free and say, hey, we're talking about democracy, it's President's Day. Well, I don't like these presidents because they were slave owners, which I did say and was never invited back again. You have to make a choice. Do I want the lights? Do I want the stars and glamour and maybe the six-figure salary, which at one point I was making? Or do you want to put your shoulder to the grind <laughs> and maybe find that you're not invited to the Christmas party or, you know, or some of these functions? You're not flown across country for the junkets that many people have gotten accustomed to. And for some people, it's cool when you're 20. It ain't so cool when you're 30, 40, 50 and have kids and a house and a mortgage and things. You got a lifestyle that you're used to. So you go along with that. I'll close with this. To the point about news agencies and their business-to-business thing, there's a lot of laziness, and that manifests itself in how people report crime. I can go to a police blotter, which are media-friendly, L.A., Oakland, and I could just read off 15 stories about crime. I've seen that on some of the local media outlets here. They read them off, and their justification is like, well, we're getting the news out to people. We're helping the police. We're get, basically, you're a stenographer, the police. You're giving a police narrative. You're not doing investigation. You feel like you did a civic service by letting people know about crime. And you also, at the same time, have enhanced your ratings because you're only reporting certain type of crime. You're talking about the people stealing Cadillac converters and breaking windows, but you're not talking about the fencing rings and putting a face to that crime, which might require a little bit more work above and beyond what the police have fed you. So 
these are things that we're going to have to extract ourselves from and we're going to have to figure out ways in which we do a different type of dance and i appreciate you hearing me out And that was Davey D, veteran radio talk show host. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, and I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we're listening to excerpts from a recent panel discussion I took part in, held in March 2023 at St. Mary's College in Northern California. The panel was moderated by Nolan Higdon. Another member of the panel was Max Alvarez. Max is editor-in-chief of the Real News Network. In his remarks, he took note of the dramatic decline in local journalism and news deserts. He also looked at the tendency of big media to overlook important stories. Also, he addresses how independent reporters are stepping in to fill the gap of these so-called news deserts. Here is Maximilian Alvarez. It's a real honor to be here with all of you, with all these great panelists. I wanted to read a chunky quote here from the great Bob McChesney and John Nichols from a policy proposal that they've put forward through the Local Journalism Initiative. So here's what Bob and John recently wrote. Quote, the collapse of local journalism in the United States has its roots in the patterns of media consolidation that emerged in the final few decades of the 20th century and then exploded with the emergence of the internet and social media in the first two decades of the 21st century. It is now in its final stages, standing at the edge of the abyss after the coronavirus pandemic and the economic crisis that extended from it. Most communities in the United States are now at the point where there are virtually no paid journalists in competing newsrooms covering governance in a manner that is sufficient to sustain vibrant democratic institutions. Only in a handful of metropolitan areas does a semblance of semi-sufficient journalism remain, and it is invariably carried on by rapidly shrinking newsrooms that openly admit they are struggling to survive. In many communities, there are no paid reporters or newsrooms whatsoever. There were virtually no news deserts a generation ago or at any other time in American history. Now they blanket the country. Advertising, which provided from 60 to 100% of the revenues for local newspapers, has abandoned journalism. Advertisers, including classified advertisers, were never wed to bankrolling newspapers or journalism. It was simply the price they had to pay to reach their target audience. With the Internet's mind-boggling surveillance capacity, advertisers have found far more efficient, effective, and less expensive ways to market their products and services online. The traditional means of placing an ad in a specific medium is passe. Advertisers can now pay firms like Google or Facebook to locate potential members of their target audience, wherever they may be online, specific websites be damned. They have eliminated all the waste in traditional advertising when money was spent advertising to people who would never buy your product. This explains why online news sites are in the same boat as traditional newspapers when it comes to getting advertising support. They get, at best, pennies on the dollar compared to the glory days of the 20th century. As advertising declined, newspapers decreased in size and value, 
and consumer demand understandably plummeted, accelerating the departure of advertisers and consumers, end quote. I imagine that none of this is a shock to anyone here, but it is worth remembering how dire things are, even as we are seeing really important signs of life, especially coming from independent media sources. Now, where this puts all of us is in an interesting position, because I do feel like outlets like ours, the Real News Network, great independent outlets that we work in coalition with, including those that my esteemed co-panelists report for here, we are racing in to try to fill these gaps as best that we can. And I think in that process, we've been able to correct or revamp some of the old school limitations of legacy news media outlets. East Palestine, this is a great example. For the first 10 days after this catastrophic Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine in early February, the mainstream news networks just didn't say anything about it. It really was from increasing public pressure that it became a focus of media attention. But that was definitely not the preference of legacy media outlets. But what you did see in that interim period was a lot of independent media folks with gas masks, microphones, and cameras heading straight into the toxic area around the train derailment. And they were really the ones providing the most substantive on-the-ground reporting from residents in East Palestine and workers on the railroads. And so I think that that's just like one kind of key example of how this is both a dire situation, but also one that presents an opportunity for those of us who are committed to really doing the reporting that needs to be done right now. And I want to just kind of um, round out on that point of like, what is the reporting that needs to be done? You know, it is not an accident that the ways we consume and share news today and the way news is packaged as something to be consumed and shared are often directly at odds with our needs as engaged democratic citizens. Every day, with brutally dizzying speed, the content stream drags us along. As we struggle to keep our heads above water and stay informed about the world around us, the news from yesterday, even from this morning, is already a distant, fading memory. But how has that information actually empowered us to act? What can we really do with it? What else can we do besides consume it or bite-sized versions of it and move on lest we drown in the flood that's always coming? In headlines, tweets, listicles, and snappy cable segments, the news is meant to command momentary attention, not to encourage deep thought or facilitate productive discussions about how working people can address the issues of our day. And we, in turn, have become the passive spectators and reliable consumers the news industry needs us to be to sustain its faltering business model. But here's the point I want to get to, because you'll hear this all the time you're about like, what is the point of journalism? It's to inform people. But staying informed is not an end in and of itself, because the question is informed for what? The democratic function of a free press and the civic necessity of journalism go far beyond just informing people about the goings on of their world. They are supposed to empower us to act more effectively in our world. 
to provide the resources we need to be active shapers and stewards of democracy itself. And that is what we really try to do at the Real News Network, is not just report on the stories and lift up the voices that mainstream media so often ignores completely, but we also don't want to do that in some sort of voyeuristic way where we are reporting for a similarly passive and voyeuristic audience that exists like outside of the story that we're reporting on. We try to make media that actually addresses people as the agents of change that we need in the world. So we always try to give people the context and information and forms of analysis they need to better cut through the propaganda that they're getting from corporate news sources or the government. We are also trying to harness the tools of rigorous principled reporting and apply them to the causes that we believe in. Causes like the fight for working people to have a comfortable, dignified life free from exploitation and abuse in the workplace, the fight of people and their families who have been victimized by the prison industrial complex or the police industrial complex, the fight to hold these complexes and the powerful people that run them accountable for their crimes. And we do that by, again, enjoining the people who are watching, listening, and reading our work to feel as if it is their duty, their responsibility, and within their capacity to do something to address the issues that we are raising in our reporting. Not to just beat them over the head with a bunch of problems with the world, but to really try to provide pathways to fixing those with a theory of change that understands that change is going to come from the people, from the grassroots up. And so that's really what we're trying to do here at The Real News Network. In terms of the work that we are doing and that we commit our resources to seeing that editorial mission come through, we cover labor. That's really my big beat, but we have a lot of other contributors who really focus on lifting up the voices of actual workers and organizers from Home Depot in Philadelphia to Amazon in New York, Starbucks stores around the country, strippers in North Hollywood, rail workers across the U.S. and in France and the United Kingdom. But we also, as I mentioned, have weekly shows like the Police Accountability Report, that does the type of dogged accountability reporting on the police that local and mainstream media just don't. We also have Rattling the Bars, the show that focuses on the violence and victims of the prison industrial complex, which was founded by our now past comrade Eddie Conway, who himself was a political prisoner for 44 years in this country, and a Black Panther who was framed by COINTELPRO. Now that show is hosted by the great Mansa Musa, who was incarcerated for 48 years. We had the Chris Hedges report. We just published a great original piece on indigenous communities in Mexico fighting organized crime and transnational corporations to defend their lands against environmental destruction. And we've been really covering more than I think most other English speaking outlets, worker struggles outside of the US. We just published a new report on the general strike in France. That's our fourth documentary video report on these strikes, and I have yet to find one from most media outlets. That's really the gap that we're trying to fill here at The Real News.
I do really want to emphasize something that all of us pointed out. The algorithmic censorship is very, very real. We understand censorship in very rudimentary terms, primarily the government saying, you can't say that. There are plenty of other forms of censorship, including private entities saying, you can say that, but we're going to make sure no one hears it and no one sees it. And so just to give one illustrative example, after the Russiagate stuff, Facebook used to be the main traffic driver for a lot of news outlets, including the Real News Network and other independent outlets like Truthout. I think it used to account for around 40% of our web traffic. It now accounts for less than 5% of our web traffic. We used to get hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of engagements with a single post. Now we're lucky if we get dozens. That's not because we're doing work that isn't as good. It literally is like being shadow banned. People are not seeing it on that platform. So I do really want to highlight that as a, as a very, very real and ever-present reality. I also wanted to add, because I think about this, like I said, I cover labor every day. I interview workers about their lives, their jobs, their dreams, their struggles. I really try to get to know them. And I really do try to have the people I talk to be the reporters of their own stories because they are ultimately the experts on their own experience. And so I see my job as an interlocutor who's trying to help them tell the story, their story, the way they want it to be told. And so I talk to workers from different industries all over the country, in other countries. Uh, a lot of it is steeped in my own experience as a low-wage worker for many years. And I would connect the question of censorship to the question of liberty and how we only understand liberty and restraints on liberty as, again, a government entity saying you can't do this or you can't live this way when the economic coercive force can essentially have the same effect, but we just don't call that unfreedom. What I mean is like Karl Marx's famous challenge about, yeah, you can be free to quit your job. You're not a slave. You're not forced to be there. But when you are making such low wages that losing those wages could mean you lose your house, losing that house means that you are thrust into a vicious society that criminalizes homelessness, that has no social safety net. How free actually are you to quit that job? The answer from most of the workers that I talk to is not free at all. Now, add on to that. The fact that the vast majority of workers in this country are employed at will, meaning they could be fired for any goddamn reason that any boss comes up with. Like if you're gay or a trans person, your boss can fire you for that. If they say I'm firing you because you're trans, then you have a legal case to make. But if they can come up with literally any other excuse to fire you, but in their hearts, they're firing you because of this or that reason, because of the employment law in this country, that's perfectly legal. And so I think that that question of economic censorship, that question of economic coercion, and what that does to silence people is really one of, if not the most pernicious forms of censorship that exists in our countries today. We mentioned the railroads. I reported on the railroad, the crisis on the railroads for over a year now. No one gave a about it until we were 12 hours away from a national rail shutdown in September. But suddenly we were able to pump out all these hours and hours of interviews with rank and file workers that I'd recorded. And so people were able to get a lot of the context that they were not getting from mainstream media. 
And one of the reasons they weren't getting that context is because it, most railroad workers would not speak on the record because they would get fired. It took months for me to earn enough trust just to get people to talk to me with a pseudonym. And many are getting fired. Many, many of the people who did speak out over the last year are getting retaliated against right now. Other thing I just wanted to add really quick is the other ways that people's economic status is used as a way to censor them. I just did a segment at Breaking Points about GOP lawmakers and industry lobbyists trying to roll back child labor laws in this country and succeeding. They just succeeded in Arkansas, for Christ's sake. But you have a lot of child labor that's going on in this country, and it's being done by brown migrant children who can't speak out because their immigration status is hung over their head. You know, like if they say anything to the press, then they risk being deported. They risk losing that economic lifeline that they are using to support their families back home, let alone themselves. There are hunger strikes going on in prisons around the country right now. You're not hearing about them because that information is very tightly clamped down. The last example I would give, I remember going to Wisconsin, rural Wisconsin, to report on communities banding together and fighting against industrial hog farms being built in their areas that were going to pollute the air, land, and waterways. It was going to tank property values. These hog farms are horrific in the ways that they treat the animals. There was one local newspaper in Polk County, Wisconsin, that was actually covering this story. And particularly one journalist who was critical of the machinations behind these deals that were being made to build these unwanted hog farms in this county. But that newspaper depended on advertising revenue from the company that was building that hog farm. And they successfully pressured the newspaper to fire that journalist. This happens all the time. And it's not the government doing it. So we really do need to expand our understanding of what censorship looks like. And that was Max Alvarez, the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network. He spoke at a panel discussion last month about the state of journalism. This is the Project Censored Show, and I'm Mickey Huff. This week's program, we're sharing excerpts from a panel discussion on the state of the free press. Finally, today, we'll hear from the fourth member of the panel, myself, Mickey Huff. I spoke to the group about what we call censorship by proxy. It's an honor to be here with all of you. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks to everybody at St. Mary's College. Certainly thanks to you, Nolan. And uh, definitely thanks to my esteemed colleagues, Menar, Max, Davey, all perfect examples of what citizen-based community journalism looks like. So a big challenge we face and I'll get to the definitions of censorship and some censorship by proxy, but so many amazing points have been made. I want to talk a little bit about this issue. We have a crisis of confidence in journalism in this country that really, it's been coming a long time, but it was really spurred on by the moral panic of fake news in the 2016 election. We've all written and talked about this. 
Nolan and I have written a couple books about it. Nolan has, in fact, one of the seminal books on it, The Anatomy of Fake News. And of course, that's a tired trope and a strange term that was weaponized. But it really, at the same time as it was establishment propaganda, so that they could have a Trojan horse of censorship to police disinformation, bookmark that. It also really was something that many Americans already felt. We had become increasingly polarized and siloed in our sort of media hangouts. As Davy said, you know, and Menar alluded with algorithms, you know, things we might want to see are actually shadow banned, critical views are shadow banned, where things that we don't even really care to see just flood our feeds on social media. Over half of Americans get news from social media, which is a big problem because they're not journalistic outlets. And here's the point I wanted to start with, believe it or not, journalism is not an industry. It is a public service. It is about civic engagement and information that is required to have a functioning, self-governing democratic republic. It is not for profit. It is not for sale. And until we begin remembering this and teaching this to the next generation of intrepid reporters, as well as actively engaged citizens, the crisis will deepen. What we have is a civil crisis. We are in civic decay because of our collapsing schools, our collapsing journalism infrastructure. We wrote about this in the United States of Distraction a few years ago. These trends have been coming for over half a century. The unbridled embrace of neoliberal policies and federal deregulation and the outsourcing of everything to the holy markets, the grail of capitalism. This is what's actually at the core of almost every crisis we face, from the derailing trains to derailing journalism to our derailing democracy, from East Palestine, Ohio, to the West Bank with Israeli apartheid. We struggle to get information about what's happening because we have allowed a handful of small for-profit corporations to control this information to infotain us to death. And as Lao Tzu once wrote, if you don't change direction, you may end up where you're heading. Well, are we there yet? All the markers along the way for the last hundred years really kind of point to this, whether it's the Hearst and Pulitzer battles and the penny press, or the rise of propaganda and Eddie Bernays in World War I, who said that it's supposed to work that way, the establishment's supposed to control narratives. And Hearst really kicked off the major for-profit advertising model in a lot of ways that mushroomed into what we see as the cable news racket today. It's difficult to just drop a pin and start somewhere because it's all connected. And everything that the other panelists said today is all connected. It's all part of this same context about the kind of society we actually have versus maybe the kind of society we're taught we have or the one we actually want. And what real journalism does is it, it's not about chasing profits and eyeballs for advertisers because that's a conflict of interest, as Davey clearly pointed out. And as Max pointed out, the kind of journalism that he does really goes into the working community. And it reports from the community by people who are in the community. Nolan, you talked about news deserts. Well, that means that there's no longer platforms that have journalistic integrity to report about communities to people who live and comprise those very communities. Martinez was a case in point of what happened in our very backyard. I grew up 30 minutes from East Palestine, Ohio. 
I have family there. I knew about that when it happened and the disaster that was unfolding before two weeks went by. Joe Biden went to Ukraine before anybody bothered to show up, his transportation secretary to show up in East Palestine, Ohio. What imagine if we gave $200 billion, which we've given to Ukraine for the illegal Russian invasion, but what if we gave $200 billion to the infrastructure? What if we gave $200 billion to fund a grassroots media, community media project like Bob McChesney and John Nichols talked about that Max mentioned? That's what we need. We, as a society, this collapse of journalism, over 50% of Americans that say that they don't trust the media, they're not talking about Menar or Mint Press. They're not talking about Hard Knock Radio. They're not talking about the Real News Network. And they're not talking about the work we do at Project Censored. They're talking about corporate media. They've lost faith in the business model that has totally corrupted journalistic integrity. What if journalism really did disappear? Then none of us would be here. But journalism hasn't disappeared. It's thriving in the independent level. But we just have to help elevate it. And people need to understand what journalism is and why it matters. That's why journalistic education is so important. And at Diablo Valley College, we've been trying to utilize the Inquirer newspaper there to report in the news desert that is Pleasant Hill and Martinez. And our student reporters have been going out and scooping the East Bay Times and getting real stories that the local media don't have time or don't bother to cover. So there is hope for a true model of community journalism. But I wanted to get to the definition of censorship, and that's also where Menar started. News deserts are a form of censorship. They're by design. It's not profitable there. And of course, why is it not profitable? Because the media is owned for profit. A.J. Liebling once wrote in The New Yorker in 1961, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. And we've got a billionaire press. We've got a press and a social media infrastructure that's dominated by the billionaire class. They report about things that concern them, not us. And we, we catalog that in the new Project Censored book. We've cataloged it for years. Again, this is not new. This is not new information. Upton Sinclair blew the whistle on this a century ago. Liebling did it. Ben Bigdikian did it. Project Censored was all about calling out the consolidation of corporate corrupt news. And in its place, we need to have something that is an uncensored and unvarnished look at what's happening in our communities to tell the public what's really going on. Censorship is anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have a free press system. The First Amendment protects the press from government intervention. And we know government intervention happens. Thank you, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. But we also know that there's another far more insidious and pernicious form of censorship that the government stands by and silently applauds, and that's censorship by proxy. And this is, again, this concept of censorship by proxy is what we define as restrictions on freedom of information, number one, undertaken by private corporations, either big tech or that own media, which two, exceed usual legal limits on government censorship, and three, serve both corporate and government or third-party interests. We're finding this out again because of the Twitter files. And again, because some of the Twitter files expose Democratic Party corruption from the Biden administration, from the FBI, from the CIA, a lot of Democrats don't like that. But we know that the Trump administration was doing the same things. We know that the Trump administration was actively trying to get certain people fired from their jobs.
We know that the social media companies were wildly deplatforming people across the spectrum. But I will have to say, when you look deeply, it's far more from the left and from community media organizations than it is from the right, though there is censorship of both libertarian and leftist critiques of our society, because they both tend to critique the way that the capitalist system strangles, for different reasons, the free flow of information. And that is what we should be keeping our eyes on. Who's controlling the narrative and to what end? For what reasons? How do we uncensor this kind of information? And the way to do that is by having a true unfettered and free press. And we talk about education being part of that. We talk about community media being part of that. And we really talk about critical media literacy education as being the best way to handle and deal with misinformation, with propaganda, to teach people how to think critically about news and information, to encourage them to be part of a responsible communicator, as Davey talked about, building relationships with audience, not outsourcing it to corporations, not outsourcing it to algorithms, not asking for paternalistic control to censor those with whom we disagree or have cancer culture run amok, whether from the right or from the left. We need to openly embrace the principles behind the First Amendment and begin dealing with them in a way that goes well beyond their 18th century origins and 19th century origins. We live in an industrial complex, whether it's the national security complex, big pharma complex, fossil fuel complex. The media was feeding off of all of these to promote agendas that benefited those industries at the expense of the public. That kind of journalistic industry is the very one that's a problem that the public has lost trust in for good reason. We shouldn't resurrect it. What we should do is get a true people's journalism based on principles of civic engagement, open access, transparent sourcing, and having an ethical sense that journalism is not supposed to do harm and it's supposed to help elevate all voices, particularly those that are the hardest to hear. And with that, I'll end uh, simply by saying that I know it's convenient for us to want to have our schadenfreude moments when we, we see someone we don't like or disagree with getting silenced or curbed or put aside, but that's highly misguided. And it's well worth supporting the right of people to be heard and then to disagree with them and to prove them wrong than it is to silence people and not let the public decide. Thanks very much for your time. And again, it's an honor to be here with so many wonderful panelists. Well, that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show today. I'm Mickey Huff, executive director and founding co-host of the program with Dr. Peter Phillips, our former director. Eleanor Goldfield is our current co-host and an associate producer. Anthony Fest is our senior producer and the man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on some 50 stations around the U.S. and is available as a podcast streaming online. Thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.